Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Good morning, church. This morning's scripture comes from Ephesians 4, 29. I'll be reading out of the Good News Bible, Ephesians 4, 29. Do not use harmful words, but only helpful words, the kind that build up and provide what is needed, so that what you say will do good to those who hear you. Julie, thank you so much. I, I like that version. That was good. Thank you. Patrick Avalon, worship team, thank you. What a great song. And uh, Patrick wrote that song, so, yeah, just so good. So good. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for the message? Almighty God, loving Father, sovereign Lord, King of Kings, embodiment of kindness, of gentleness, love and truth. We worship you. We reverence you. We're in awe of you. We need you. We look to you. We hope in you. We invite you to speak. We want to hear your words. We invite you to send the Holy Spirit that he might fill us and teach us and enlighten us that we might follow your word through the power of the Spirit in us rather than the power of our own flesh which fails. We ask you to minister to us as well as those, our brothers and sisters, that are joining us online and listening. Some have deployed, some are sick, some have moved away. Some have never been in this building, but they're part of your church. We all come together and ask for the Spirit to move and to speak. And I humbly ask for the Holy Spirit to use me to speak words that are true, that lift up Christ, that change our lives for the good. Speak now, we ask, and help us to listen. Through Christ, we ask all these things. Amen. This is scary, writes Eugene Peterson in his paraphrased version of James 3. This is scary. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. With our tongues, we bless God our Father. With the same tongue, we curse the very men and women he made in his image. Curses and blessings out of the same mouth. My friends, this can't go on. This can't go on. Today we come to the fourth indicator of our health, Roman numeral four in your outline. We're going to look at all four of them briefly, but number four is the use of your tongue. But before we examine our tongues today, let's review where we've been. Indicators of your health, Roman numeral one there on your outline in the box. If you're listening online, it's in the PDF icon if you click on that. Roman numeral one, how you use your time. We looked at that. That's the indicator of your health. And we saw that everyone is given the exact same amount of time every single day, 24 hours a day. 
that is decreed by our God who created time and spoke it into existence. And no one, therefore, actually ever runs out of time. We're all given the same amount of time every day. We get 24 hours to start over again. And so when we feel like we don't have enough time, it's because we don't really have the priorities God wants us to have. We're trying to do something that God doesn't want us to do. We saw from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, that God tells us how to make the most of all our time. How do you make the most of your time? He tells us it's by being filled with God's Spirit. And anytime you're filled with God's Spirit, you are using your time well. And anytime you're not filled with God's Spirit, you're not using your time well, no matter how effective, efficient, or productive you might be. The second indicator of your health, Roman numeral two, is how you use your money. How you use your money. And Use of money is one of the most visible indicators of your health. Visible to you, visible to others, visible to the Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ told us that our money and our hearts are inseparable. Your heart will always follow your money. And your money will always follow your heart. And when we read the scriptures, we see that unlike us, Jesus isn't concerned about amount when it comes to money. He's concerned about attitude. Where us, we, we look at our bank accounts and we're concerned about amount. And we look at our paychecks and we're concerned about amount. And the Lord says, yes, but are you concerned about your attitude? That's an indicator of your health. We also saw that you will never be content with how much money you have until you decide that you are content with how much money you have. The third indicator of your health, Roman numeral three, is how you use your how you use your mind. Yes. And we saw that more than anything else, your mind not only indicates your health, it actually determines your health. Your mind determines your mental health, of course, and your spiritual health. It determines your emotional health, and to a large degree, your mind determines your physical health because your mind influences everything about you, and you become whatever fills your mind. We saw that we were encouraged by Dr. Henry Cloud, Christian psychologist, to what he calls dig it up to dig up what's in our hearts and minds and see what's there. And if it's junk, to throw it. And if it's a dream, an aspiration, something good, to sow it. Because everything visible, everything you can see in this room and outside this room, came from the invisible. It came from the mind of someone. It either came from the mind of a man or woman who said we should build a building, we should invent a sound system, we should make this car, and it started in their mind and the invisible became visible. And all of creation started in the invisible mind of God who spoke his thoughts into existence. You're becoming whatever fills your mind. And fourthly today, we come to Roman numeral four in your outline on that box, how you use your tongue. Justin Martyr, the well-known second-century Christian apologist and philosopher 
who was martyred for his faith, thus earning the moniker Justin Martyr. He wasn't called that, obviously, while he was alive. He wrote this. He said, By examining the tongue of the patient, physicians find out the diseases of the body, and philosophers the diseases of the mind. So metaphorically, I want you to stick out your tongue, (laughs) and we're going to examine it today. Like James 4 that we read earlier, or had read earlier. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul, through inspiration of God, also talks about our tongues, our bifurcated tongues. And bifurcate in English means to divide. And it comes from the Latin, which literally means two forked. And so we're going to be talking about our forked tongues today. Tongues that sometimes speak, speak blessing, and at the same time, a tongue that can speak cursing. Tongues that can speak life into a person and a situation, and tongues that can speak death into people and a situation. Tongues that speak words of love or words of hate, words that help or words that hurt, words that build up or words that tear down, words that encourage or words that discourage, words that speak the language of God, and words that could be the language of the devil. We have forked tongues. Please follow along in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, as we read about our bifurcated or forked tongues. It says in Ephesians 4, 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but contrast. None of those words, but only these words. But only such a word as is good for edification or building up, according to the need of moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, my English translation, the New American Standard, as well as other English translations, may be too gentle or are too gentle with their translation because they say, speak no unwholesome word. But that word unwholesome in the Greek is a Greek word, sapros. And sapros means rotten or putrid. My Bible actually has a marginal note that says unwholesome literally means putrid or unwholesome. Well, what's the difference? Well, there's a huge difference. A donut might be considered unwholesome, but hopefully your donut isn't putrid and rotten. (laughs) When I was a boy, my parents used to hide those colored hard-boiled Easter eggs for us to find, and we'd hide them in the living room, and we'd look for them, and and after we found them, then we'd go off to, to church and celebrate the true meaning of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I remember one year before church, we're, we're looking for these eggs, and I discovered one that was hidden really, really well. It was in a cabinet behind some books, and I pull it out, and my mom shrieks, and she says, don't crack it open. That's from last year. <laughs> That's a rotten egg, not unwholesome, putrid. <laughs> and so in Ephesians 4.29 it's actually telling us not to speak putrid, rotten words. So if you look at your outline there, we want to contrast two ways to use your words. Two ways to use your words. The first way is unhealthy. The second way is healthy. The unhealthy way. Number one, it's unhealthy to speak rotten words. That's unhealthy. Don't speak rotten words. You might call this spiritual bad breath. And spiritual bad breath comes from stinking thinking. And when you have stinking thinking, you have spiritual bad breath. You speak rotten words. 
And rotten words are words that tear down. They tear down. Some of you, unfortunately, were subject to rotten words as you were growing up by maybe a parent or a step-parent, and those words tore you down. For some of you, it might be happening right now from a spouse or maybe a sibling or even a boss. Words that tear down, that have torn down your self-image, your view of yourself, maybe even your self-confidence. Someone saying, oh, you can't do that. You're no good at that. You're lousy at that. You're not very good looking. Your nose is so big or your ears are this or whatever it is. And it tore you down. Those are rotten, stinking words. An old proverb says that a six-foot man can be slain by a three-inch tongue. So can a six-foot woman, by the way. Jesus had harsh words for adults who used their words in a way that harmed children. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, let me read what it says in verse 2. Jesus speaking says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. And by stumble, he's not talking about physically putting your foot out. The Greek word stumble there, skandalos, is a word we get scandal from, by the way. And he's talking about stumbling somebody by what you say to them. And the little ones there might be children. Some people say they're little Christians that haven't matured yet. Well, it's true of both. You're not supposed to use words that tear people down, that scandalize them, that cause them to turn from the Lord in some way. It's such a serious crime. In fact, it's a capital offense to Jesus, he says. It would be better if you took that grinding stone that you use and someone hung it around your neck and threw you into the sea. Jesus is pretty serious about how we use our words. And the scriptures have a lot to say about rotten words. In fact, did you know that rotten words are one of the disqualifications for church ministry? You can't be an elder or a pastor in a church if you are one who habitually has rotten words. I'm not going to turn to the passages, but the references are there on your outline. 1 Timothy 3.3 tells us that if you are quarrelsome or pugnacious is the word there in some translations, if you are contentious or argumentative with your words, you are disqualified from being a leader in the church. 1 Timothy 3.8 tells us, for the people who serve behind the scenes in the church... They're prohibited from having, my translation says, double-tongued. They fork tongue. You say one thing to one person and you say something over here. You're a hypocrite with your words. Just because you're serving behind the scenes doesn't mean you can gossip behind the scenes. Doesn't mean you can sow division behind the scenes. That disqualifies you from serving in the church. And 1 Timothy 3.11 tells us that women who are, and here there's a difference of opinion whether these are women married to people in the ministry or these are women who are in the ministry themselves, but he says these women should not be malicious gossips. And the English phrase malicious gossips 
comes from a Greek word, a single one. It's the word diabolos. And you're going, well, diabolos, that sounds like the Spanish word, diabolo. It sounds like the English word, devil. Well, of course, they come from, of course, the Greek, diabolos. It means devil. When you see the word devil in English, it's the word diabolos. When you see the word gossip or malicious gossip, it's the word diabolos. It's the same word. Because gossip is the language of the devil. He speaks rotten words. He's the father of lies. The only power that the devil has over a Christian is the power of his words when you believe them. He can't make you do anything you don't want to do. He doesn't have that power. He's a defeated foe. He was defeated on the cross. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, He's a defeated foe to you as a Christian. The only power He has is the power you give Him by believing His words. The only power He had over Adam and Eve was the power of His words. And He spoke lies to them. He slandered God to them. He said, what God said is not true. You're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to be equal with him. Go ahead and eat the fruit. Adam and Eve weren't forced to eat the fruit. They believed a lie, and that's the power the devil had over them. And it's the same of you and me. When we believe his lies, I'm no good. I'll never accomplish anything. I'm not a very good Christian. I'm so bad. Whatever it is, you believe his lies. That's when he has power. Don't believe his lies. Because he came to steal, kill, and destroy, and he uses rotten words to do that. And that's why the phrase diabolos, malicious gossips, is a word for the devil. And when you speak the devil's language, you're disqualified from ministry. Well, that's gossip. But there's something even worse. Slander. Ephesians 4, verse 31 Mentioned slander. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Isn't it interesting that slander is associated with anger and wrath? It's associated with clamor and malice. I don't know if you know the difference between gossip and slander. I wasn't sure, so I looked it up. And Webster's tells us that a gossip is a person who repeats idle talk and rumors about the affairs of others. A gossip repeats idle talk and rumors about the affairs of others. Oh, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Hey, did you know that neighbor down there? But someone who slanders has a sinister motive. Webster defines slander as the utterance in the presence of another person of a false statement or statements damaging to a third person and to their character and reputation. Slander is a false statement with the purpose of damaging someone else. It's sinister. Gossip may or may not be true. The motive may not be malicious. But slander is intentional. The intentional use of words to destroy, to tear down someone's reputation through a lie. Proverbs 16, 28 states that it's a perverse man who spreads strife, a slanderer who separates intimate friends. 
Slander proceeds from a wicked, sick heart. And when you're slandering someone, you are spiritually unhealthy. So let's not do that. George Whitfield was an English evangelist. He lived between 1714 and 1770. He left England after preaching there and came to America and was part of a series of revivals in America that became known as the Great Awakening. It's estimated that he preached over 18,000 times to approximately 10 million listeners, all without television, of course. He spoke to large crowds. And what happened, he was a very controversial figure, so they kicked him out of the church in England and wouldn't let him preach in the church. And he came to America, controversy followed him, so they wouldn't let him preach in the church. And that turned out to be a blessing because he had to preach outside where he could have larger crowds. And he could speak to tens of thousands of people without a microphone. Well, Benjamin Franklin didn't believe it. He wanted to know if someone could really speak to large crowds without a microphone. So Benjamin Franklin went to hear George Whitfield. And Benjamin Franklin went to the back of the crowd and could hear him fine. So Benjamin Franklin then kind of measured off an area and counted how many people were in it. And then he estimated how many people were in the crowd. And he estimated there was a crowd of about 30,000 people that could hear George Whitfield without a microphone. And Benjamin Franklin and Whitfield became friends and corresponded throughout life. But at one point in his ministry, Whitfield received a vicious, slanderous letter accusing him of terrible wrongdoings. His reply to the letter was brief and courteous. He wrote, I thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself then you will ever say about me. <laughs> With love in Christ, George Whitfield. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and I think that could be said of all of us. We know worse things about ourselves than anybody could ever say. Rotten and putrid stuff in our hearts needs to be dug up and thrown away, not spoken to other people. And remember, it's better to be the one who is slandered than to be the one who's doing the slandering. Two ways to use your words. We looked at an unhealthy way. Now let's look at the healthy way described for us in Ephesians 4.29. Number two there, speak grace-filled words. Speak grace-filled words. In other words, words that build up. And that's our word edification, words that build up. It says in Ephesians 4.29, but only such a word as is good for edification, that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace-filled words are words that build up. Now, we're all familiar as Christians with the word grace, but it's... One of those words that's hard to define, it's a Greek word, charis, and charis is a word that has a, a broad definition. It, it does, it can be translated grace, that's a good translation, but it means words that are joyful, pleasurable, delightful, 
and lovely. It includes those things. Joyful, pleasurable, delightful, and lovely, gracious words. One of the best gifts you can give to someone of any age, but especially to emotionally and spiritually developing children, are grace-filled words. Words that build, good job on that. I like what you did that. I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. My dad's words to me changed the direction of my life forever. I had just come home from my first day of a doctoral program. It was in the area of preaching. And I came home from my first day, and I go, I think I'm going to drop out. I, I'm discouraged. I don't like what we're supposed to do. And the professor said, in order to graduate from your doctoral program, you have to actually publish a book on preaching. And I go, wow. That's, because he goes, we don't want just a, a dissertation sitting in a library that nobody reads. We want you to help change other preachers through what you learn here. And so I told my dad, I don't, I don't want to do that. I have another vision of what I want to do. And my dad said to me, he said, son, after my first day of working on my doctorate in dentistry of dental school, I wanted to drop out. But I didn't. And I stuck with it, and my dad became a dentist, and he went on further and became a specialist, a periodontist, and that was his career for 36 years. My dad said, you should go to the professor and tell him what your dream is, what your vision is, and what you want to accomplish and see if he'll approve it. So I, I went to the professor who was directing the doctoral program, and I said, well, what I want to do is I want to preach through the entire book of Romans, verse by verse. I'm going to record it on what some of you might still remember are called cassette tapes, you know, way back then. And then after the sermon, I want to give preaching guidelines in order to help the people that listen to it know how to preach. Because I notice books on preaching either contain sermons or they contain theory, but they didn't put them together. They didn't show me how to apply the theory, and I want to give them both. And then I want to take these tapes, and I want to send them to men and women who can't go to Bible school or seminary in India, the Philippines, and Indonesia, where I had contacts, because I had discipled men there who had gone there and started their own schools. And I said, I want to use those schools to, to propagate what I'm doing. And the professor goes, wow, okay. <laughs> and so I did that. And I produced, and I, had, I preached for six months or whatever through the Book of Romans. I recorded it. I had the preaching tips. I sent it out. And then the people in those countries said, do you mind if we translate them into other languages? And so they translated them to other languages in Indonesia and the Philippines and India. And India said, do you mind if we publish it as a book? And I said, no, I don't mind if you publish it as a book. And my dad's words changed the course of my life. I traveled to the Philippines. I traveled to Indonesia. I traveled to India. I was asked to teach in Russia right after the Soviet Union fell. I went there six times in the early 90s to train men who had been in prison for being Christians that wanted to know how to preach, and they had never heard a sermon. Because you couldn't do that since 1917 in the Russian Revolution. And so I got to train men to preach the word of God in Russia because my dad's encouraging words. And you have to listen to me because <laughs> my dad's encouraging words that helped me become a better preacher. Dads, moms, aunties, uncles, whoever you are, singles, your words can change a life for the good or for the bad. 
A dad I know was talking to me in the kitchen of his house, praising his daughter to me, his teenage daughter, and he did it in words loud enough so he knew she could hear him because she was in the other room. Grace-filled words build up. They change lives. But rotten words are destructive. Now, you may think, oh, this is all too complicated. I'm just going to be quiet. I'm not going to say a word. Well, silence isn't the answer either. As we come closer to the end of the sermon, (laughs) there are a couple things we need to talk about. Giving someone the silent treatment isn't the answer. There are two unhealthy ways to use your silence. We're going to talk about those briefly. Two unhealthy ways to use your silence. The first one is this. Number one, be silent when you should speak up. Be silent when you should speak up. In Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, we have a passage of Scripture that often is referred to by people who are protesting abortion and believe that we should stand up. Notice what it says. Proverbs 24, verse 11, Deliver those who are being taken away to death. Speak up. And those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? God knows you know. God knows what you've seen. Expects us to speak up. And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Perhaps we all recognize that God is going to judge us according to our words, but he's also going to judge us according to our silence. It's a common phrase now that you know, we hear. It's a way to combat, hopefully, terroristic threats. It's, if you see something, say something. Don't be silent when you should speak up. There was a Lutheran pastor in Germany. He lived there under the horrible regime of Adolf Hitler. His name was Martin Niemeller, and he summed up what happened when he was there and his response to Hitler's atrocities that were going on all around him. He says, in Germany, they came first for the communists, but I did not speak up because I was not a communist. Then they came for the Jews, but I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, but I did not speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up. Martin Niemeller was put in Dachau concentration camp. He would have been executed except for the fact the war came to an end before he was executed. And thus, he was able to write the words that I just read. We need to speak up against injustice. We need to speak up against cruelty. We need to speak up against immorality. We need to speak up for the underdog or the abused or the mistreated or the neglected. We need to speak up for Jesus. 
Civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. perhaps said it best. He said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies. We will remember the silence of our friends. Don't be silent when you should speak up. There's a second unhealthy way to use your silence. And the second way is this. It's speaking up when you should be silent. (laughs) It's speaking up when you should be silent. And we're all perpetrators and victims of that. If only I'd kept my mouth shut. (laughs) Did I actually say that out loud? (laughs) Wow. I can't believe you just said that. (laughs) Proverbs 17.28 reminds us that even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. Don't speak up when you should be silent. You may be thinking it, but never say, have you gained weight? (laughs) Don't say, wow, you really aged since the last time I saw you. (laughs) I was in Covey's, the three and four-year-olds that we have on, on Wednesday at, at Awana, and, and I work with the three and four-year-olds, they're so cute, and, and I was sitting next to one of the three-year-old little boys, and we just had a lesson, I'm sitting next to him, and he looks at me with a little smile, and I smile back, and he goes, you look old! <laughs> <laughs> and he's right! But why did you have to say it? <laughs> uh, just because you think it doesn't mean you should say it. Your words should be encouraging. Well, I see it's time for me to be silent, so let's wrap this up. (laughs) I'd like to wrap it up with uh, the words of one writer. He says, let your words be like Red Bull to the soul. Red Bull's an energy drink. I think it's like liquid caffeine or something. You know, but let your words be like Red Bull to the soul. In other words, giving uplifting energy when it is needed by another Words that hurt, words that heal. Let's speak the words that heal. Would you pray with me? I'd like to invite you to bow your head so you can have a private moment. You might want to close your eyes, but still listen, please. God is speaking. He always speaks through His Word and through His Spirit. He's been speaking to you. He's been speaking to me. I'd like us to take a moment to think about what He's said to each of us individually. And he knows what you're thinking, so you might as well speak those words back to him, what you're thinking. You're either thinking, I need to do what he says, or I don't want to do that, or I'm not going to do that. He knows, so you could be honest and just speak them back to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the words he's speaking are words of salvation. He, he wants you to know that Jesus died for your sins and He was buried and rose from the grave. He conquered death. He wants you to know that He offers you eternal life forever. and He's offering you a free gift. And you get to decide whether to receive it and listen to His words and have eternal life or to listen to the words of the devil who's lying to you and have eternal damnation. And those are the words that are being spoken to you and you have to choose. And if you've never chosen Christ, I'd urge you to listen to the truth and choose Christ today. 
Simply cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me, and he'll do just that. Lord, we are grateful for your words to us, and we ask that we might obey you through the power of the Holy Spirit and use our words to lift up others. And we ask all these things through that powerful name, that wonderful name, the name that has no equal, the name Jesus Christ. Amen. In the love of the Father, in the grace of Jesus Christ, in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, may you leave here today. God bless you all. In Jesus' name, amen.